Well, we are starting a brand new series this morning that's called Things Jesus Never Said, okay? And so with that in mind, open up to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. This is a mini-series in the Gospel of Mark, and it's, the series is called Things Jesus Never Said. And we'll be looking at verses 13 to 17 this morning. And as always, if you forgot your copy of God's Word, just flip the bulletin over. It's on the back. We got you bailed out. No shame here, Grace Life. Your shame is covered by Jesus in us. So Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Now follow along, please, as I read. Starting in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Verse 15. And as he, being Jesus, reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 17, And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is an awesome text. Awesome text. And very encouraging, and yet I also think convicting at some level, because this text, you know, it tends to step on our toes. In fact, it steps on mine personally. And when we first planted this church, when we first planted Grace Life in 2015, uh, there was a young couple who immediately started coming to our church. They were here from the very first Sunday. And uh, let's call them Stanley and Rosie, okay, just for the sake of argument. And Stanley and Rosie were super excited to be at church. They were super excited to be at Grace Life and to hear more about Jesus and what it meant to be a Christian. Um, They were a young couple dating in their early 20s. Um, Stanley had grown up in, in, in a home that used to go to church, but they hadn't been to church in a really, really long time. And so their family sort of fell away from following the Lord. And Rosie, on the other hand, she came from a completely different background. Both of her her parents were deceased, and she was actually raised by her grandma. And so she really didn't have a whole lot of family, so to speak, because her grandma actually had recently died. And so Rosie was like all by herself in the world. Stanley's family was her family for all intents and purposes. They start coming to Grace Life. This young couple, they're loving it. They're loving to hear more about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happened was Stanley and Rosie started getting involved, and pretty soon Stanley's sister started coming to church. Then pretty soon Stanley's parents started coming to church also here at Grace Life. And they weren't just here to hear sermons, they actually wanted to help out too. And so we actually launched our first ever Deltona home group in their house. They were all on board with our mission and our church. They were super hospitable, super nice people, and then it all blew up overnight. And the reason it blew up was because of me. And it started when it came to my attention that this young couple was living together. And so I immediately picked up the phone. I, I called Stanley. I said, listen, dude, we've got to get coffee like now, like ASAP. So we got coffee, and I took him through all the scriptures in the Bible that talk about sex before marriage. And he explained to me, you know, we're living together, but we're not sleeping together. And I said, yeah, right. I'm thinking, yeah, right in my mind. But I'm called to believe the best of all people, so I took him through all the scriptures that talk about fleeing every appearance of evil and, you know, cars being parked out all night on the road and testimony to neighbors, even though they hadn't been churched that long, okay? But I'm concerned about their testimony to other people. And so I walked him through all these warnings, and I basically, even though they hadn't been churched a long time, I drew a line in the sand, and I said, brother, you were on the other side of that line. you got to get back on this side. You need to move out of your girlfriend's house tonight. That was my exhortation to Stanley. And it was like two days later, three days later, Stanley's mom called me fired up, like irate, and basically chewed me out. And back in those days, this is 2015, okay? Back in those days, I match your tone, okay? That's my philosophy of conversations. However you call me and however you speak to me is how I flip back and speak to you. So if you call me and you show grace, I'm Mother Teresa, okay? (laughs) 
But if you call me and lay into me, I'm going to shake you up. That was, my, that was my, back then, okay, two years ago, the Lord's working with me. So she, she called me, and she basically put me on blast and said, I can't believe you told my son to abandon this girl. She's all alone in the world to pay her own rent. You told him to move out. I can't believe you would tell my son to do that. And I basically just lit her up, and I said, listen, you are perpetuating your own adulterous lifestyle upon your son because you and your husband lived together before you were married, and now you're trying to condone his sin. And I basically, for like an hour, I just lit her up. Now, doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what happened. They left our church, and they broke off all communication, and we never saw them again, the whole family. whole family's gone. And I remember the last thing she said to me, this is Stanley's mom, last thing she said was, you know, your name is Grace Life, but you guys don't seem very gracious to me at all. <laughs> and I tell you what, when people asked me why they left our church, I told them, listen, few will be saved, and you better count the cost when you follow Jesus. And I also told them, you know what? People leave gospel-centered churches too. You know, people left Jesus' ministry. If you had asked me if I thought I was doing God's will in that circumstance, I would have answered absolutely without a doubt. And yet since that time, God has revealed to me that my character and my behavior and the way I handled that situation was more in line with the Pharisees than with Jesus. You know, I didn't realize it at the time, but I had this, this heavy like good, bad, evil, clean, you know, dichotomy in my mind when it came to unbelievers. And so I sort of viewed like all of life like this turf war between the world and the church, and we're called to like separate from anything in the world, completely remove ourselves from any kind of like relationships with unbelievers. And so I tended to view, even though I didn't realize this, I tended to view unbelievers as the enemy instead of the mission field. And this was, listen... This was my fault entirely, but I have to be honest. I went to seminary, and I was reared in fundamentalist environments. I cut my teeth in fundamentalist-type churches, where it was like this heavy dichotomy between us and them. I know, I'm going to get in trouble in this sermon. I know I am. But that's how I tended to view life. And so I thought my calling as a Christian pastor was not only to separate myself and my family from sinners, but also my entire church I was supposed to separate from sinners. But in our text this morning, we're going to learn something Jesus never said was to stay away from sinners. He never said that. I mean, those words never came out of his mouth, although we tend to think they did. And that's why we're starting a new series this morning called Things Jesus Never Said. Because oftentimes, in our hearts, we have these ideas about things that Jesus taught and things that Jesus did in certain situations. You know, would Jesus bake a cake for a gay couple getting married? We have all these ideas in our mind about what Jesus would do. And then we read the Bible and we discover, you know what? The Pharisees would do that, but Jesus wouldn't. And so we get confused sometimes about what our reaction and our response should be to situations in our life. And we think our gut instincts are right. And you know what? A lot of times they tend to be wrong. You know, Jesus not only offended people in the world, he also offended religious people. So there's a middle way, there's a third way. And listen, when you're following Jesus, you can count on it, you're going to take off both crowds, okay? You're going to take off the world because you're standing against certain things, and you're going to take off religious folks because they think you're compromising. And so we're starting a brand new series this morning called Things Jesus Never Said, because we learned Jesus never said to separate from sinners, in fact, he spent most of his time around unbelievers, around the unholy, the irreligious. Most of them were Jews that knew the law. They knew what they should be doing, and you know what? They didn't give a rip, but Jesus gave a rip about them. And so Jesus, he spent most of his time around those who were irreligious. And listen, this really confused and stirred up the Pharisees. When you read the word Pharisee in the Bible, you have to remember these were the, the elite religious leaders in Israel at this time. In fact, the word Pharisee in Hebrew literally is the word parush, and it means separated ones. These cats were the separated dudes. They didn't sin, they didn't hang around sinners, and they didn't watch MTV, okay? They were completely separated from anything that was sinful or ungodly. And I realize the word Pharisee today, it's become like a sanctified curse word. It totally has. I mean, if you called someone a Pharisee, they want to fight you in the parking lot after church. I totally get that. But you have to understand, when you read through the Bible, the word Pharisee 2,000 years ago was actually a compliment. 
You know, if I told you 2,000 years ago, dude, you're such a Pharisee, you'd be like, thanks, man, that's awesome, dude. Appreciate that, man, I'm killing it. Um, the word Pharisee was, was a term of sort of like nobility. It was a badge of honor. Because when you study the Bible, you have to understand, the Pharisees took the Bible very seriously. They took the Old, the Old Testament dead seriously. And so the, these aren't the people that show clips of Leave it to Beaver in church. These are the cats that like study the Torah and they go hard after it. And so when you read the word Pharisee, don't think immediately religious hypocrite, okay? Think of earnest believer. Think of earnest religious person. Because these guys strove for godliness. And Pharisees, they held one main conviction about their relationship between them and the world, okay? Their main conviction was this. You separate from sinners. And the Pharisees, they divided all all of life into two groups, okay? There was two kinds of people in the world. There were the kabarim in Hebrew, which means basically your fellow countrymen, okay? Your fellow churchgoers. People that also love God's law and seek to obey it. Those are the kabarim. And the Pharisees, they would associate with the kabarim. They hung out with the kabarim. Their kids could play with their kids, okay? That's the first category. And everyone else was, was lumped into this sort of like drip pan category called the Amharats in Hebrew. Literally, the people of the land. If you didn't obey the Bible and you didn't care, you didn't strive after godliness, you were called the Amharats, the people of the land. Literally, the unwashed masses, the sinners, those who don't care about Moses and the law. And listen, the Pharisees, they restricted heavily their behavior with the Amharats. In fact, there's an early Jewish document called the Talmud, and the Talmud, it's sort of like the purpose-driven life, okay, for, for Jewish people, okay, for Pharisees. But it's a book of oral tradition. And in the Talmud, this is what it reads literally, verbatim, quote, A Pharisee and an unbeliever must never eat a meal together, lest it lead into sin. The Talmud didn't stop there, though. The Talmud also taught that you could not even be a guest in the house of an unbeliever lest you being in the house led to a meal which led to sin. So basically, the Pharisees invented this whole idea of the slippery slope. Have you heard this? Don't you go hanging around unbelievers because if you hang around them and you go in their house, you could have a meal. And if you have a meal, it could lead to sin. Slippery slope. The Pharisees were the original fundamentalists. And they they were the ones that originally, they first said, you know what? Separate from sinners because, listen, rather than you pulling sinners up to your level, they'll probably pull you down to theirs. They were the first people to invent that phrase and that thought. The Pharisees were the original fundamentalists. And what happened was, this guy named Jesus comes along and he openly associates with the Amharats, the sinners, the unwashed masses, the people of the land. Those are Jesus' people. I mean, consider our text this morning. Consider it. Look at verse 14. It says, Jesus walks by a tax booth, and he sees this guy named Levi, and he says, hey, follow me. Which means, hey, come be my disciple. Now, this would have been absolutely scandalous because Levi is not a seminary student, okay? He's not hanging out in the, in the preaching lab waiting for someone to come call him into ministry. Levi is a modern-day criminal. Because back in those days, a tax collector is someone who could legally extort money from people. I mean, the tax collectors, they could collect as much tax as they wanted, and they had the full backing of the Roman government behind them to collect and enforce whatever tax they imposed upon people. And so they'd come to your house, knock on your door, hey, give me 10 grand, or I'm going to break your legs, or I'm going to take you to jail, or I'm going to repossess your house, or your family, or whatever it is, and the people had to pay. Tax collectors were crooked government cronies during this day. And so Jesus walks by a tax booth, and he calls this unwashed sinner to be one of his disciples. As Kramer says, mind equals blown, okay? Unbelievable. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 15. It doesn't stop there at all. It says, later on that night, Levi threw a celebration at his house 
And at this party, verse 15 says, there were many tax collectors and sinners. Now, that's very interesting, okay? Because, listen, the Pharisees, you know, you read through the Gospels, they sort of, like, just happen to be wherever Jesus is at. You know, so they're sort of, sort of like, strolling through Levi's, you know, neighborhood, and they look in Levi's house, and they, say, they see Jesus in the middle of this great group of tax collectors and sinners, and they're eating and drinking and having a good time of fellowship, and this absolutely offended their religious sensibilities. I mean, Jesus is supposed to be this holy man sent from God, and yet he's associating with sinners. And the Pharisees thought this. They thought, this, this, this guy can't be from God. This is unholy. This is compromise. This guy can't be the Messiah. He's too edgy. He's way too scandalous to be the Messiah. And so you know what the Pharisees did? They did what any good Christian does or believer does. They actually rebuked him and questioned him publicly. And so they say, you know, we feel called to point out this man's sin. And so in verse 16, they ask him, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' answer in verse 17 blows us away. It blows us away because, listen, Jesus does not disagree with their assessment. He didn't say, hey, man, why you got to go there? Why you got to get all judgmental and, you know, and, and, and like sort of like rebuke these people? He goes, he didn't say that at all. He says, yes, these people are evil. They are a basket of deplorables, okay? And they're sick, but he says this, I came for the sick. And so he doesn't disagree with their assessment at all. He actually says, yeah, they're evil. They're bad. They're sick. But he says, I came for the sick. You know, the Pharisees, they could not wrap their mind around why Jesus hung around sinners. And Jesus says, the reason I hang around sinners is because they're the only ones who see the need for my message of grace and forgiveness. They're the only ones. I mean, the Pharisees didn't need Jesus. They had willpower. And they had the law. And they said, you know what? We don't need Jesus. We got everything figured out. We keep the law. And we're earnest about being you know, devoted to God. So they didn't see their need. Jesus said, I hang around the sick because only the sick see their need for a doctor. That's why he hung around with sinners. It's kind of like the famous bank robber, Willie Sutton. He was asked one time, they said, why do you rob banks, Willie? And he said, because that's where the money is, right? And so they're like, Jesus, why do you hang around sinners? He's like, because they're the only people that need a doctor, okay? They need a doctor. You know, perfectly healthy people usually don't go up to doctor's offices and just hang out in the waiting room, right? I mean, Tommy and I, we've had our office in Dr. Yoon's medical clinic for two years. I have yet to see someone show up and fill out the symptom questionnaire and put, fine, fine, great, never felt better, you know, watch me bench 300 pounds. You know, no one comes up to the doctor's office to prove how healthy they are to the doctor. Everyone's jacked up that comes there. Because only the sick need a doctor. And so Jesus spent his time around sinners instead of separating from them. And here's the deal. Jesus' life and ministry teach us two very important lessons, okay? This text teaches us very two important applications, okay? The first one is this. We are called to actively cultivate relationships with non-Christians. Mic drop. Done. You know, just walk out the stage. Seriously, we are called to actively cultivate friendships with non-Christians. And I would go a step further. If you are not currently cultivating relationships with people that aren't believers, you're being disobedient. I like what Scott Saul said. He wrote a book called Jesus Outside the Lines. That is like sort of like tweaking my brain right now as I read it. But He said, when Jesus got invited to a tax collector party, he went. When he got invited to a Pharisee party, he went. He was never turning anybody down. He was friends with so many different kinds of people. And by virtue of his association with sinners, and by virtue of his willingness to offend the faithful in order to move towards those who did not know him, it's very instructive for us. Jesus never said no to a dinner party. Whether you were a Pharisee and you were a self-righteous bigot, he'd be with you. If you were a sinner, a down-and-outer, the salt of the earth, he was with you. He would eat with you. He would associate with you. And this got him in trouble with everybody. And you can know you're following Jesus if you're hearing accusations of compromise or judgmentalism from both sides of the fence. And you know, when you read through the Gospels, something you discover is that Jesus was often a friend of sinners before he was their Savior. You know, he didn't walk up to people and say, listen, if you bow down and worship me, we can hang out tonight, okay? Okay. 
That's not how he rolled, okay? He, he didn't say, follow me and bow down and worship me, and then we can be friends, you know? He actually ate with sinners, loved on sinners, was patient with sinners, healed sinners, and his one-way love for them actually changed them. That's how it went. And so if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is often first a friend, secondly a savior. And so I think oftentimes we get this backwards and we don't follow in the footsteps of Jesus because oftentimes we think salvation has to happen first and then we can hang out with someone. And so we we get the whole equation backwards. And that is why I think Christians, we often stink at being friends with people that, that are not Christians at all. I mean, we're often very abrasive with unbelievers instead of endearing ourselves to unbelievers, you know? And, and we feel like, I think I do at least, and I'm so narcissistic and proud to think that you think exactly like me, so I'll preach it anyway, but um, we tend to feel like we need to shove the gospel in the first time we meet someone. Is that your heart too? It's like you've talked to someone for five minutes, okay? You move into a neighborhood, you're meeting the neighbors, and you're like, hi, my name's Jeff, my wife Lauren, these are my three sons. By the way, if you die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? And how would you know? <laughs> and, and the people are like, look at you like, you just punched them. They're like, dude, I just live next door, man. And the guy goes back and tells his wife and kids, do not hang out with the new neighbors, the Eckerts, you know? And I, this is what we do. We think, well, I'm just being persecuted for Jesus' sake. No, you're a religious weirdo is what you are. And they're about to call Homeland Security on your rear end. <laughs> if you're not careful, like we got some Christians that just moved in, you know. That's that's how we treat people, and you know we wonder why our, our neighbors don't want to talk to us. <laughs> you know, when they see us, you know, cutting our lawn or whatever, they go inside because they they don't know how to respond to our heavy cultic religious language and lingo. It's like we skip the friendship phase and go right to the evangelism phase. Okay. And that is why Christians often stink at, you know, befriending unbelievers. And and let's be honest, there's a couple of legitimate reasons why we are very hesitant to engage with with non-Christians. There's a couple of really legitimate reasons, okay, and understandable reasons. First of all, let's just be honest, we're afraid they're going to taint us. We're afraid if we hang out with them and we let our kids hang out with the world, then they'll become like the world. And I understand that is a valid concern. I was a pastor of college students for three and a half years. I know the importance of healthy relationships in the body of Christ. I understand water seeks its own level. I get all that. I understand it. Holiness is definitely a priority for every Christian. With that said, Jesus said you're to be in the world but not of the world. If you're going to fish for men, you've got to have your boat in the water, but you don't want much water in your boat. So you're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And a lot of times, we're afraid, you know what, if we hang around unbelievers, they're going to taint us. And so we just separate, and we refuse to associate with sinners. And and there are some Christians out there, and some preachers, and people that make the argument that we're not supposed to follow in Jesus' footsteps and befriend sinners, because they say Jesus was God, and he was holy, and, you know, he could hang around sinners and not be tempted, and they say, but we're, we're sinful, we're fallen, and we're not Jesus, so we've got to separate. Have you ever heard that argument before? And not many recovering Baptists in here, I guess, right? It's a real argument that's out there. Um, they, they say we're supposed to separate because we're not Jesus, and we, we're tempted. Here's the problem with that argument. Look at verse 15 again. Look who is with Jesus in this party, at this house with these sinners. Jesus and his disciples are there. I mean, they're right there in the house, too, hanging out. So Jesus brought his disciples along too. And listen, this is very instructive for us because Jesus would never willingly lead his disciples into temptation. He wouldn't do that. I'm sure Jesus loved chicken wings like all holy people do, right? But Jesus would never take his disciples to the wing house. He just wouldn't, okay? He would go somewhere different, you know? So Jesus would never willingly lead his disciples into temptation. So his disciples are with him, which means this. This is our mission too. Jesus didn't tell his disciples, hey, listen, guys, I'm about to go into this party. There's a lot of sinners in there. Hang out here, pray, read the Bible on the street corner here. I'm going to go in here and evangelize these dudes. I'll be out in a couple hours. That's not what he did. He went in and brought his disciples. And so we're supposed to reach out too. But many times we think they'll taint us. That's the first reason we sort of like reason out ourselves and sort of like exempt ourselves and opt out of evangelism. That's the first reason. Secondly, the second reason we don't reach out is because reaching out is costly. It's going to cost you your comfort, your time, your patience, 
And it could even put your life in danger. Reaching out and exposing yourself and your family to the world, people that need Jesus. It's very, very costly. And so it only makes sense that in our mind, we'll find every scripture we can to rationalize the holy huddle mentality. You know, we're striving for the purity of the church, and we have to keep the riffraff out and thin the herd and drive people off that aren't sincere. We have all these anecdotes and phrases to push people out and away from us that aren't quite committed to Jesus, just like the Pharisees did. And so we exclude people that need Jesus the most. Because, listen, we are much better at putting up walls than building bridges to unbelievers. Because deep down inside, here's the real reason, it's costly to love them. And so we'll show up at the abortion clinic, and we'll pick it for three hours. And we'll lose our voice screaming that abortion is murder. And we'll go home thinking we've done God's duty. And we'll post on Facebook how Planned Parenthood is an abomination. And listen, all those things are true. But when the single mother with five kids by five daddies moves in next door, we shun her. We will fight vigorously for the rights of the unborn, but once the child is born, we write those people off. And we say, you know what? She's got five babies by five dads. She made her bed. She's got to sleep in it. And we don't buy diapers. We don't buy toys. We don't invite her and her family to dinner. We don't seek to reach out and build a bridge. We're better putting up walls. And we call ourselves Christians because we fight against things like murder. And that is murder. But listen, you're also called to love the born. And we're so good about voting Republican and and getting that part right, we forget the benefits and the blessings of also being a Democrat, that they fight for life and programs that help people. Jesus is neither Republican nor Democrat. Jesus is for himself. And so we are so good, I think, at building walls instead of bridges because bridges cost us time, they cost money, they cost effort, they cost emotional investment. I mean, how many times have you invested in someone only six months later to see them walk away from the Lord? It costs us something. And listen, it's much easier to criticize someone and call that holiness. It's much easier to do that. But if your holiness only manifests itself in criticizing other people then it's not real holiness. It's not real holiness. I mean, we are called to put ourselves out there and reach out to unbelievers, and that's very uncomfortable and costly at times. In fact, it can even endanger our safety. You know, my wife and I, ever since day one at Grace Life, we have sought to make our home, you know, a a place of great hospitality. You know, the word hospitality in Greek literally is a lover of strangers, people you don't know, people from another planet. And we have sought to open our home up, and I'm always inviting people from Planet Fitness to my house for Bible study, for dinner, people at McDonald's that work there. I cultivate relationships with everyone I try to meet. And listen, it's gotten me in trouble sometimes, because when we first started the home group in our house, there was a guy that visited one night. Never seen him before that night, and didn't see him much after that night, but he he came to home group. And after home group was over, my wife is showing him around the house, because we just moved in, really they're like a month. We just moved in, and so she's giving this guy the tour. And during the tour, this guy asked two really interesting and strange questions. First of all, where do your kids sleep? Second of all, what time do they go to bed? Now, we didn't sleep much that night, okay? We devoted ourselves to prayer and fasting, okay? But listen, that, even though that concerned us and alarmed us, that did not give us the right to shut our house down and stop being hospitable to the world. Those are the risks that we're called to take to reach the unreached. And that's uncomfortable. That's costly. You can't just isolate yourself and say, okay, no more guests come in our house. We are called to lay down our freedoms and our comfort for the sake of those that are outside. Literally to love strangers. And thankfully, nothing ever came of that. It's probably an innocent question. The guy probably didn't realize how that came across. But listen, it freaked us out. But that is our calling as Christians. If you take risks to reach unbelievers for Jesus' sake, your life could be in danger. I mean, the Apostle Paul is the, is the best example of this. When you read through the book of Acts, and you read all about Paul going around planting churches, the guy is a beast in discipleship. No one out disciples Paul. But Paul always brought two things wherever he went. A Bible and a first aid kit. Because you read through the book of Acts, every city he goes in, he gets stoned, okay? And if you're a millennial, that's not what you think it means, okay? (laughs) Getting stoned in biblical times is totally different. I know some of you are like, this Jesus thing is awesome. Um, 
getting stoned is when you take big rocks and you throw them at someone and try to kill them, okay? So uh, that's what it means to be stoned in the Bible. But he would get stoned, and so listen, it was so bad that Paul actually started taking around with him his own personal physician. His name was Luke. He was a doctor. Luke actually wrote the book of Acts. He's actually writing the whole thing, and he's got a first aid kit with him there, defibrillators. He's like, yeah, then Paul did this and this. Because listen, when you put yourself out there, trouble's going to come. And people always ask us, you know, why do you and Tommy have your office in the, in the Yoon Medical Clinic? And now you know. It's totally biblical, you know. We know when you preach the truth, man, drama's coming. <laughs> so we're ready. Like, patch me up, Dr. Yoon. Took another hit for the kingdom, you know. That's how it is. We even got a dentist next door, you know. We got Andy over there in case someone knocks our teeth out. But listen, when you put yourself out there, uh, like 10 people got that, that joke. Um, when you put yourself out there, drama's coming because you're going to take off the religious and the world. You're not going to be friends pretty much with anyone when you try to obey Jesus. So uh, living a faithful Christian life will make you feel very uncomfortable. But this is our calling. You know, C.T. Studd was from England. He was a master cricket player. He was a world-class athlete. Dude could have went, you know, pro and made all this money. He gave it all up and went to the mission field. And, And before he died in Africa... On the mission field, he said this. He said, some people want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within one yard of hell. That's what we want. We want the holy huddle, we want the chapel bell, and all my favorite hymns on Sunday morning, but I don't want any unbelievers up in here, because that's uncomfortable. And then i got to actually teach my kids how to interact with them, and that's a whole lot of trouble I'd rather not have. Because I value my time and my comfort more than I value the lost, the unbelieving. But Jesus' philosophy was, I'm going to go right to the sick because the sick need me. And so this text teaches us, this text teaches us, first of all, Jesus was a friend of sinners before he was their savior. That's the first thing. We should be reaching out and cultivating relationships with non-Christians. Okay, second of all, the second principle this text teaches us is this, okay? A healthy church should have some sick people in it. Now, I'm not saying that unbelievers are the church. I'm not saying that. The church is made up of Christians. The church is the body of Christ. With that said, the church should have some unbelievers around, listening, observing, coming to service, coming to home group, partaking of the body of Christ, enjoying the benefits of the body of Christ, while they make up their mind whether or not they believe all this. That should be normal. A healthy church should have some sick people, I would say many sick people in it. Because if we're supposed to be integrating our lives with the world and with non-believers, it would only make sense that some of them would find their way into here on Sunday morning. It would only make sense that some of them would find their way to our home groups on Wednesday nights. That would only make sense. Because these are our friends, people that we love and care about. And something that God has been teaching me the last couple years is this. The church is supposed to be a place where people can belong before they believe. They need to feel comfortable enough to belong before they believe. Skeptics okay, and unbelievers should feel very welcome here. They, They should feel totally welcome to come in here to observe, to see our services, to hear our doctrine. And so the church should be a place where people feel safe, even if they've never made a profession of Jesus Christ, to come in here and listen and learn. And listen, we shouldn't kick everyone out that's not sold out and on fire for Jesus. That was my mistake with Stanley and Rosie. I drew a line in the sand, and even though they'd only been in church for a few months, I said, listen, you better conform to our standard of morality and holiness or get out. And you know what? They left. That was on me. I should have been more patient. I should have, you know, maybe, maybe done like a whole year-long discipleship course of what it means and been patient and prayerful and encouraged them repeatedly to move out of his girlfriend's house. And that was after they made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Because so often we run out and we want to moralize the world. They don't profess faith in Jesus yet. And we're placing our morality and standards upon people when they're not even devoted to Christ yet. And church should be a safe place where people can belong before they believe. That should be the norm. I mean, this is especially true considering the culture we live in today. Something that blew me away recently was there was a study that came out by WalletHub. WalletHub is a website. 
and uh, you may have heard about this, Wallet Hub ranked the 150 most dark and sinful cities in America. Okay, cities that had the highest rates of alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, cheating on spouses, gambling, gentlemen's clubs, violent crime. They even had a category, which cities do people give the least amount of money away to charities and churches? That was interesting to me. They had 27 different categories. You know what? Orlando was ranked number four. It was the fourth most sinful city in America. Number one, Las Vegas. Two, St. Louis. Three, Cincinnati. Four, Orlando. Now, let's back the tape up for a second, okay? We live in Deltona, okay? And a lot of people that live here, guess where they work? Orlando. And so you've got people that live next door that have spent the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years of their life being discipled by that culture, and you expect them to come in here and change their worldview overnight because they heard a couple sermons? That's absolutely crazy. This ain't Mayberry, folks. This, this is not Little House on the Prairie. This is 2017. I know we like to talk about the good old days when everyone voted Republican and nobody sinned. Okay, we love that, okay? But this ain't Mayberry, okay? This is 2017 living in America. And what's normal for us is not normal to people out there. What's normal to them is clearly wrong to us. But the more I realize where people are coming from, the culture they've been in, the culture they've only known their entire lives, which is living together before you're married, that's normal. Right? Amen? And the more I look and see you know, where our culture is at and really try to empathize, the more I understand how stupid it is for me to expect someone to come in here, hear four sermons in a series, and then totally change their whole worldview overnight. I've expected people to change so fast, and when they haven't, I've written them off or I've hammered them and driven them out of here. And my behavior has been more in line with the Pharisees than with Jesus. And God has been reminding me, God's like, dude, listen, just calm down. Show some grace because people don't change overnight. They don't change overnight. I mean, a marriage that's been on the rocks for decades is not going to change after eight standard counseling sessions. It's not going to happen. It's going to take time. They didn't get into that situation overnight. You don't get out overnight. You have to relearn biblical patterns of how to think about conflict and where to go and, and, and principles of even communication. How do you even communicate with your spouse? Those things are deep and real. And listen, when you spend 40 years playing according to one set of rules and you come into the church, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes patience and time. And listen, the people to get frustrated the quickest are your counselees. you got to give them a hope that tomorrow doesn't have to be like today was and that things will get better. But listen, one sermon series, you know, one lunch, one counseling lunch is not going to lick someone's porn problem. It's usually not. Sometimes it does. But our society is full of people who have been discipled by the world for decades, and people don't change overnight. Listen, even Christians don't change overnight. Amen? One of my favorite preachers of all time uh, was a man named Roy Hargrave. God could light it up, man. And, and he had this saying. He, he said this. Every person has a blind spot in one area of their life, and everyone else can see it but them. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about and what. You have something in your mind. Everyone can see it but this one person. And he used to say, listen, everyone's an idiot in one area, and everyone else can see it but them. And I think that describes Christians so well because we're all works in progress. None of us have it all figured out in here. And we tend to forget that. I mean, let me give you a practical example, okay? Let's say, let's say a new family starts attending Grace Life, and, and they're professing believers. They moved here from out of town. And let's say the dad is like this sold-out dude for Jesus. I mean, he's a Bible beaver. He's always in the Scriptures, tearing it up. And when he comes to church, he comes early, stays late, helps break down the church, sets it up. Anytime there's, there's any kind of like ministry opportunity, he's there. And so this guy is sold out for Christ. But let's say that whenever you hang around this guy and you hear him talk, you notice that he uses a lot of racially charged language. Let's just say, okay, hypothetically, this guy is always talking about Middle Eastern people and how they can't be saved and how they shouldn't be allowed in this country and there should be a ban on them. And let's say he, he's, just a, he's a blatant racist. Everyone else can see it but him. And let's say all of this comes to a head when on a Sunday after church, a bunch of families get up and they're going to lunch at Zaxby's. And this guy is taking his family with them. 
And as they're walking out to the parking lot, this guy looks over and he sees a Middle Eastern family in this group getting ready to head to Zaxby's. And he says, you know what? Me and my family are going to go home. Uh, you know what? We're not hungry. And let's say someone asks him and says, hey, man, what's going on here? And he says, listen, between me and you, me and my family will never eat or associate with those kind of people ever. Now, let's say you sat down with this guy in love. And, and you tried to just like in, in love and gentleness sort of explain to him his racism. And you, you started off by saying this. You said, dude, tell me your testimony. You know, I haven't, I haven't known you very long. Tell me about how did you come to Christ? And let's say he tells you this. You know, I was actually called to faith by Jesus himself personally. And then Jesus discipled me for three and a half years. And then Jesus died and he was resurrected. And then Jesus, after he was resurrected, he sent me out to be an apostle into all the world and preach the gospel in his name. Now, you'd be a little skeptical, wouldn't you? <laughs> you'd think to yourself, either this dude is high on bath salts or he's a TBN evangelist. <laughs> I'm not sure which one it is yet. But this guy did not spend three and a half years with Jesus. It's impossible for you to spend that much time around Jesus and be that racist, okay? And you'd be right, except for this is the Apostle Peter's testimony. You read through the book of Acts, Acts 10, Acts 11, Acts 15, Galatians chapter 2, Peter over and over and over again exhibits this pattern of blatant racism. He doesn't quite want Gentiles to be allowed into the kingdom. And things get so bad, he gets rebuked so many times, that in Galatians chapter 2, Paul, the apostle Paul, has to get up in the apostle Peter's face and confront him because Peter will no longer even eat and associate with anyone that does not share his ethnicity. He is a blatant racist throughout the New Testament. And listen, it took repeated exposures to the grace of God for Peter to change. And you read through the book of Acts and you're like, is this the Apostle Peter? You read Galatians 2 and you do everything you can to explain it away and your study Bible helps you. But listen, he's a racist. He's struggling with racism. He doesn't want Gentiles to be in the kingdom. And so what? He won't even eat and associate with them. And so even after salvation, even after the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in his heart, Peter is just as racist as if he had never come to Christ at all. I mean, think about it. Jesus and Peter spent three and a half years together. And I counted that up. That is 1,278 counseling lunches, okay? Let's just say they met together and they did a little life-on-life -life soul care. And Jesus is like, tell me about racism. And he lays down on the couch and he tells them all. Let's say that's 1,278 counseling lunches. After that was all over, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter is still fired up about Gentiles being allowed into the kingdom of God. And that's because every person is an idiot in one area and everyone else can see it but them. And that reminds us, friends, the church, the church, Tommy has said this so many times, the church is not a museum for saints. It's a, it's a hospital for sinners. Because all of us are works in progress. We're, we're all works in progress, and no one here has it figured out. And listen, a healthy church is going to have some sick people in it. If you don't have some people in your church who are wrestling to live out the truth, then you don't have a real church. You have a church full of people who are pretending. If everyone is on fire and zealous for Jesus and has all their Bible reading plans up to date, if that's everyone in your church, then your church is full of Pharisees and they're all pretending. Because listen, a healthy church should have some people struggling in it. Because all of us are works in progress. And sanctification does not happen overnight. And so the church should be a place where people can come and feel comfortable to, to belong before they believe. And where they feel comfortable to say, you know what, I'm not quite sure you know, where I stand with Jesus yet, but I'm interested, and I'm growing, and I feel like I'm learning more and more about Christ. That is the church. I have a friend, his name's Chan Kilgore, and uh, you may have heard of him. He's a, he's a pastor over in Orlando. And 14 years ago, he planted a church there. He and two of his closest buddies, right? Three families started this church in Orlando. And it grew and grew and grew, and then it split and planted another church. And it grew, and that one split and planted, and split and planted. It kept growing and growing and growing, and they planted, 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 planted. You know, they didn't supersize, okay? They split out diversified. And um, now they have 28 total churches. It all started from one seed church. Just one church started it all 14 years ago. And I, and I asked Chan one time. I said, dude, I said, what is the number one barrier to the spread of the gospel among the unreached. 
What's the number one thing that jacks up a church and stops the gospel from spreading and from other churches doing what you did? And he said this, religious people. That blew me away. He said, religious people, they come to your church, they want to make the church about everything other than the Great Commission. They want to argue about, you know, anything from the the carpet color to their music preferences, whatever it is. They want to make church about them. It's about what makes me feel comfortable. Can we preach more on these specific doctrines, Pastor? And it's like, but, but dude... We're worried about them too out there. And Shan said the number one thing that will jack up your church and jack up your time, they will suck your time, they will suck your resources, you'll get in endless conflicts and battles, they'll critique everything, and at the end of the day, they'll never reach any lost people. He said the number one barrier is religious folks. That's the number one thing. And so we have to remember, what is the, what is the biggest hindrance to the spread of the gospel? It's, it's me. It's you. It's us. Getting in the way of what Jesus is doing here and making something else the main thing and making the main thing a minor thing and forgetting about it. Because listen, the mission of the church is the Great Commission. That's what it is. You can tell me the church exists for the glory of God. Okay, whatever, whatever you're saying here, pal. But exists for the reaching of the nations. That's what it's for. And you glorify God most by reaching the nations. So you can kind of redefine it with your sola dea glory, reformation theology all you want. Okay? But at the end of the day, you have to reach out. That's the mission of the church. And so the greatest single hindrance to the expansion of the gospel is religious folks. Because the salvation of a sinner gives God the most glory. Luke 15, there's joy in, sinner over, there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. And listen, friends, we live in a community of 80,000 people who are desperate and hurting. They're desperate. Orlando, the fourth most wicked city in America. Think about it. An aloof church is not going to win those people to Jesus. If we even merely tolerated sinners, if they could come in here and we sort of like tolerate them, we put them over in the corner, that's not going to win people to Jesus. Only a church that reaches out and actually wraps its arms around the world and patiently waits for them to change and endures, you know, uh, with long-suffering their sin, their lifestyle. Unless a church reaches out and wraps their arms around those people and patiently waits for them to change and keeps shoving the gospel and pointing them to Christ, that's the only way that we're going to reach this community. Because an aloof church, a church that just separates ourselves and says, you know what, we're not allowing any sin in here. We're not allowing any sinners is what we're saying. And here's the deal. Are people sinful? Are Christians people? You know where I'm going. <laughs> we got to take the law of Moroni, right, before we start calling down fire on the Samaritans, right? You with me? Because we're jacked up too, and we don't change overnight. Now, here's the question this morning. How do you cultivate a love for unbelievers? How do you cultivate a love for the world that, that is willing to wrap your arms around them, to love them, to inconvenience yourself for the sake of the gospel? How do you, how do you, how do you cultivate a love like that? Well, the answer is this. It's not by trying very hard. The gospel has to drop in our hearts. Maybe not for the first time, but for the 500th time. Because as John Calvin said, each of us are part unbelievers until the day we die. And we're always, always, always trying to push the gospel deeper into the unevangelized parts of our souls. And listen, it's only by understanding that we're really not the physicians... We're actually the sick ones that Jesus came to save. It's by grasping that at a deeper level that empowers us to reach out and to not just tolerate sinners, but to actively embrace them. That's the only way it can happen. And so it's by realizing, listen, friends, I understand you, me, we've all been stumbling blocks to the gospel. We all have our preferences We all have our convictions, and we all want to exclude people that don't look like us, that don't talk like us, that don't watch the same shows we watch. I get it. I understand it. But we have to repent of self-centered Christianity. We have to repent of the desire to have a church full of faithful tithers who are white-collar people, who have it all together, a church full of Michael Landons. We have to give that idol up. Because this is not Mayberry, this is not Little House on the Prairie, this is 2017 in America. 
And, and listen, the more we understand that we are part of this culture too and that we are the sinners that Jesus himself came to save, to know that we are desperately flawed Christians that still get in the way of the Great Commission? I mean, imagine that. We're a church plant driving off sinners. It's mind-blowing to think about. But we are the very people that Jesus came and died for as well. And you know what blows me away? Is that the Bible says God does not just tolerate us, He actually delights in us. He delights in us. Even though at times we're super pharisaical and legalistic, he still delights in us. In fact, Zephaniah 3 and verse 17 says that God sings over us. He sings over us. He looks down from heaven and sees us, warts and all. And he doesn't say, you know what, man, I'm stuck with Eckert. He's such a dysfunctional disciple. I can't believe it. He did it again. He offended another person and run him off. He does not sit up in heaven doing that. He looks down and he has nothing but love for us and acceptance. And he actually sings over us. In fact, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 32, it says something really, really amazing. It says, the Lord's portion is his people. The Lord's portion is his people. Let me explain this to you. The word portion in the Bible, it refers to your refuge, that place of relaxation and rest. That place that quiets your heart and brings you peace and joy the Bible has a very, very strong definition for the word portion. It's literally, it's a source of enjoyment in your life, a major source of enjoyment. And think about this. The Bible says that the Lord's portion is his people. I understand we're sinful. Amen. We are a basket of deplorables. But listen, Jesus came and died for us because we are his portion. The cross didn't secure God's love. It proved God's love. Because God's love even preceded the cross. That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. I think we have to be so careful and don't say, Well, God loves us because he has to, because of the cross. No, the cross demonstrates God's love. It didn't secure God's love. God loved us while we were yet sinners. And Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Because God delights in his people. He doesn't just tolerate us. And, and the deeper we can grasp that, the deeper we can think of God, as the Bible says in Zephaniah 3, God's singing over us and taking enjoyment in us. Think about it. God enjoys us. It's not, it's not burdensome for him to love us. He's not letting us into heaven reluctantly. But he loves us and he died for us and he was willing to inconvenience himself. And think about it. The sin that you've committed 10,000 times, that sin that you commit even to this day, you may have repented of it this morning before you came here. Listen, it was that sin that Jesus died for. That is the sin that Jesus died for because Jesus loved us so much that he came to earth, he inconvenienced himself, and he even suffered and died and bore the wrath of God for us. And the deeper that gets pushed into our hearts. And the more secure we're in Christ, the more we'll be willing to wrap our arms around unbelievers and welcome them into the fold. And the church should be a place where people can belong before they believe.